Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of HighWizard. Thank you for listening to this podcast summarizing the April 2020 issue of the journal. The featured article this month is Value of Mapping and Ablation of Ventricular Tachycardia Targets Within the Coronary Venous System in Patients with Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy by Michael Gannon et al. A comprehensive interview with a senior author conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The coronary venous system provides limited access to the epicardial service. The authors reported a series of 41 consecutive patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and VT. They performed the mapping and ablation sequentially at the endocardium, then within the coronary venous system, and finally within the pericardial space if required. VT target sites were identified within the coronary venous system in 15 patients and by subxiphoid access to the pericardial space in 8 patients. Ablation within the coronary venous system eliminated VT inducibility in 9 patients without the need for epicardial ablation. The authors conclude that a stepwise approach with mapping and ablation in the endocardium, followed by ablation in the coronary venous system, can reduce the need for the subxiphoid epicardial axis in some patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. They also found that the close proximity of the coronary venous system to the scar detected by cardiac MRI can identify the patients most likely to benefit from this approach. Next up is a paper by Jorge Romero et al. titled Mapping and Localization of the Left Framing Nerve During Left Atrial Appendage Electrical Isolation to Avoid Inadvertent Injury in Patients Undergoing Castroablation of Atrial Fibrillation. The authors used the 20 milliamp and 2 millisecond high output pacing to localize the left phrenic nerve during AF ablation. Out of a total of 66 cases included in this study, in 14, or around 20%, the course of the phrenic nerve was deemed unmappable. All remaining patients had left phrenic nerve locations identified by high output pacing. The authors conclude that left phrenic nerve mapping is feasible and should be routinely performed to prevent left phrenic nerve injury during left atrial appendage electrical isolation. While this is a small case series from a single center, this new approach is promising for reducing phrenic nerve injury in AF ablation. Matthias Tushever et al. wrote the next article titled The Long-Term Impact of Castroablation on Arrhythmia Burden in Low-Risk Patients with Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation, the Close to Cure Study. The authors performed a prospective long-term study in 105 patients following atrial tachyarrhythmias burden using insertable cardiac monitors. Patients' median atrial tachyarrhythmia burden decreased from 2.68% at baseline to 0% during two years of follow-up. 
single procedure freedom from any atrial tachyarrhythmias was 87% one year and 78% at two years. Quality of life improved significantly across all scores. The authors conclude that castor ablation significantly reduces atrial tachyarrhythmia burden. These effects are maintained at longer follow-up. These data imply that atrial tachyarrhythmia burden is an optimal endpoint for assessing ablation efficacy. A limitation of the study is that the implantable monitor may miss asymptomatic atrial tachyarrhythmias if there is a slow, regular ventricular rate. The next article is from my own laboratory in Indianapolis, written by Takashi Kusayama et al. The paper is titled Skin Sympathetic Nerve Activity and Ventricular Rate Control During Atrial Fibrillation. We simultaneously recorded electrocardiograms and skin sympathetic nerve activity in 20 patients during atrial fibrillation. We found that the ventricular rate was higher during sympathetic nerve bursts than during the non-burst period. There was a positive correlation between maximal ventricular rate and average nerve burst area. We conclude that skin sympathetic nerve activity bursts are associated with ventricular rate acceleration. These nerve bursts may be new therapeutic targets for rate control during atrial fibrillation. A limitation of the study is that we did not simultaneously measure the parasympathetic nerve activity to determine the balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic tone in relation to ventricular rate control. Next up is predictors and outcomes of atrial tachyarrhythmia among patients with implantable defibrillators by Arwa Uni et al. The authors assessed 1,500 MADID-RIT patients for predictors for first and recurrent atrial tachyarrhythmias, atrial fibrillation, and SVT. During 17 months of follow-up, about 20% of patients developed one or more of these atrial arrhythmias. The development of new atrial tachyarrhythmias was associated with significantly increased risk for subsequent ventricular arrhythmias, other adverse events, and death. The authors also found that younger age, absence of diabetes, higher blood pressure, higher heart rate, and prior atrial arrhythmia all predicted device-detected atrial tachyarrhythmias. These data suggest, but do not prove, that aggressive management of new atrial tachyarrhythmias may improve outcomes in patients with heart failure. The next article is titled, Immuterone Treatment in Atrial Fibrillation and the Risk of Incident Cancers, a Nationwide Observational Study, by Peter Weib Rasmussen et al. Previous studies suggested that amiodarone is associated with incident cancer. Using nationwide registers, the authors included 18,000 Danish patients with atrial fibrillation who were treated with amiodarone from 1996 to 2014. After a median follow-up of eight years, about 3,000 individuals developed cancer. There were no associations between increasing amiodarone exposure and hazard of incident cancer.
the authors conclude that in atrial fibrillation patients treated with amiodarone, there was no evidence of a dose-response relationship between cumulative dose of amiodarone and incident cancer. Coming up next is automated intra-procedural localization of origin of ventricular activation using patient-specific computerized tomography imaging by Shiji Zhou et al. The authors obtained CT imaging in 10 patients and used 3D reconstruction of the cardiac surface to create a triangle mesh surface. It was then registered to the electroanatomic map obtained during the procedure and imported into the custom localization software. The VT exit site was identified for 20 VTs using activation and entrainment mapping supplemented by pace mapping at the scar margin. The automated localization software achieved incremental accuracy with additional pacing sites and had a mean localization error of 6.9 plus minus 5.7 millimeter for the 20 VTs. The authors conclude that it is safe to use patient-specific CT geometry for real-time automated localization of ventricular activation, and this technique may reduce reliance on a complete electroanatomic map. This and many other studies suggest that high-quality 3D imaging of ventricular myocardial and scar may be useful to better understand the arrhythmogenic substrate and to guide ablation therapy. The next article is by Michel Orany et al. titled Evaluation of the Reentry Vulnerability Index to Predict Ventricular Tachycardia Circuits Using High-Density Contact Mapping. The Reentry Vulnerability Index, or RVI, is represented by the interval between activation time at the distal site and repolarization at the proximal site in a reentrant circuit. A shorter RVI is more likely to be associated with reentry than a longer RVI. The authors used high-density contact mapping in 18 patients undergoing VT ablation. Activation time, the activation recovery interval, and the repolarization time were measured to, end, uh, to determine the RVI. The authors found that RVI accurately localized 72% of VT sites of origin. Inaccurate localization was significantly less frequent for RVI than activation time. The authors conclude that the RVI identifies vulnerable regions closest to VT site of origin. This study leverages state-of-the-art high-density mapping techniques to locate the origin of VT. These methods may inform novel ablation strategies. Next up is the application of non-invasive signal average electrocardiogram analysis in predicting the requirement of epicardial ablation in patients with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy by Fapo Cheng et al. This study aimed to validate the role of signal average ECG in identifying arrhythmogenic substrates that would require 
an epicardial approach to VT ablation in patients with ARVC. They studied 91 patients with a definite diagnosis of ARVC. After a multivariate analysis, the independent predictors of the requirement of epicardial ablation included the number of abnormal S-signal average ECG criteria and the presence of syncope. The number of abnormal signal average ECG criteria correlated with the extent of diseased epicardial substrate and could be a potential surrogate marker in predicting the requirement of epicardial ablation in ARVC patients. A prospective study will be needed to confirm these observations. Pierre Oditral et al. wrote the following article titled Safety of Uninterrupted Direct Oral Anticoagulants for Ambulatory Common Atrial Flutter Cast Ablation, a Propensity Score Matched Cohort Study. A propensity score for anticoagulant type was calculated from age, gender, body mass index, heart blood, and chest to DS2 VASC scores. Chronic kidney disease associated antiplatelet treatment, procedure duration, and the number of femoral venipunctures. The authors evaluated 820 patients, including 410 who underwent ablation during use of the vitamin K antagonist and 410 with uninterrupted direct oral anticoagulants. The risk for early and clinically significant bleeding was about 3.3% and was similar between these two groups of patients. Female gender, high hospital score, and the prolonged procedure duration were independently associated with bleeding. This data show that uninterrupted direct oral anticoagulant regimens are safe for patients undergoing ambulatory common atrial flutter cast ablation. In addition, no stroke or death occurred in this group of patients. The next article is pulmonary vein isolation in the beyond, predictive value of vagal reactions in second-generation cryo-balloon ablation for the outcomes of persistent atrial fibrillation by Denise Gukal et al. The authors studied 250 consecutive patients undergoing cryo-balloon ablation for persistent atrial fibrillation. Vagal reactions were recorded in 61 or 24% patients. These patients showed a significantly reduced recurrence rate of AF compared to those without vagal reactions. A multivariate regression model solely identified vagal reactions and male gender as independent predictors for AF-free survival. These findings suggest that autonomic nervous system modulation by acquired balloon ablation may improve the clinical outcome of PV isolation. Coming up next, is both selective and non-selective his bundle, but not myocardial pacing, preserved ventricular electrical synchrony assessed by ultra-high-frequency ECG by Carol Kurila et al. The authors performed a study to describe ultra-high-frequency ECG depolarization patterns during myocardial and his bundle pacing. That type of ECG records 5 kHz 12-lead ECG signals 
with a resolution of 3 nanovolt. The authors obtained 133 ultra-high frequency ECGs from 46 patients with spontaneously conducted beats, selective and non-selective his bundle capture and myocardial capture. The calculated desynchrony index was shortest during spontaneous rhythm, longer with his bundle capture, and the longest during myocardial capture of the parahishing area. The authors conclude that in patients without bundle branch block, both types of his bundle capture but not myocardial capture preserve ventricular electrical synchrony as measured using ultra-high frequency ECG. This new method may be a novel and useful tool to study ventricular depolarization with greater accuracy than standard ECGs. Michael Field et al. wrote the following article titled Comparison of Measures of Ventricular Delay on Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Response. LV pacing at sites of prolonged LV delay, or QLV, or at long interventricular delay, or RV-LV, is strongly associated with CRT response. He also studied 419 patients to evaluate the relationship between these measures of electrical delay on CRT response in the SMART-AV trial. They found that the QLV and the RV-LV were highly correlated. Among them, RV-LV is a better predictor of CRP res CRT response than QLV. In a group with intermediate RV-LV, combining the two measures achieved better prediction of CRT response. These findings suggest the combined use of these two measurements may reduce the non-response rate of CRT. Next up is impact of agent 6 on the long-term prognosis associated with early reprioritization in the general population by Artur Hokeri et al. The authors evaluated the 12 lead ECGs of 6,631 Finnish general population subjects for the presence of early reprioritization, defined by J-point elevation of greater than or equal to 0.1 millivolt in greater or equal to two inferior and lateral leads, following them for 24.4 years. After adjusting for clinical factors, early reprioritization was associated with sudden cardiac deaths with hazard ratio of 1.88 in subjects under 50 but not in older subjects. Among the younger subgroup, women with early reportation had a high risk of sudden deaths with a hazard ratio of 4.11, while early reportation in men was not associated with sudden cardiac deaths. Finally, early reportation was not associated with cardiac mortality or all-cause mortality in either age group. It is surprising to find that early reportation in women is associated with high hazard ratio for sudden cardiac deaths, but not associated with total mortality. The next article is also related to early reportation. It is titled Early Reportation Pattern on ECG Recorded Prior to the Acute Coronary Event Does Not Predict Ventricular Fibrillation During ST Elevation Myocardial Infarction 
written by Marina Dimidova et al. The authors wondered whether the early reparization pattern documented prior to the ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI, is associated with the risk of hemodynamically unstable VT or VF during acute STEMI. ECGs recorded prior to STEMI were available for about 1,600 patients. The early reparization pattern was present in about 20% of them. The authors found that early reparization was not associated with hemodynamically unstable VTVF during the first, first 48 hours of STEMI. However, they do not have data on non-sustained VTs or other types of ventricular arrhythmias. Coming up next is new electromechanical substrate abnormalities in high-risk patients with Bugatta syndrome by Carlo Paponi et al. The authors enrolled 50 consecutive high-risk Bugatta patients undergoing substrate mapping and ablation. Induction of the Bugatta pattern by Ajmaline was associated with lower RV ejection fraction and worse 3D RV mechanical function, particularly in the anterior free wall of the RV OT. Substrate ablation abolished both the Bugatta ECG pattern and mechanical abnormalities, despite Ajmaline rechallenge. The authors conclude the Bugatta syndrome is an electromechanical disease affecting the RV. The typical Bugatta ECG pattern reflects an extensive RV arrhythmogenic substrate, driving consistent RV mechanical abnormalities. Substrate ablation abolished both the Bugatta pattern and the mechanical abnormalities. These data indicate that electrical and mechanical substrates of Bugatta syndrome are both worsened by adjumating and improved by ablation. Ying Yot Arora et al. Uh, wrote the following article titled The Influence of Vegetation Shape on Outcomes in Transvenous Lead Extractions. Does shape matter? The authors studied 119 cases where the vegetations measured in two dimensions by transesophageal echocardiogram. The cohort was classified according to the shape in two groups. Globular, if there was a difference less than 30% between dimensions, and non-globular, if this difference was greater than 30%. The results show a significantly lower chance of being alive at discharge in patients with globular vegetations compared to patients with non-globular vegetations. These results indicate that vegetation size is an important determinant of outcomes. However, vegetation shape is also a relevant factor as globular vegetations may predict a worse outcome around the time of lead extraction compared to non-globular vegetations. The next article is Effect of Acute and Chronic Ethanol on Atrial Fibrillation Vulnerability in Rats by Hao Zhang et al. Atrial optical mapping was performed on male red hearts. In addition, patch clamp recordings on isolated atrial myocytes were performed. Acute and chronic exposure to ethanol increases AF vulnerability by slowing conduction velocity 
shortening right atrial ERP, increasing dispersion of ERP, and increasing sustained potassium curve. The messenger RNA of KCNQ1 and the connexin 40 were increased, but KCNA5 was decreased in the right atrium rats exposed to chronic ethanol. These findings provide a new mechanistic explanation of atrial proarrhythmic effects of ethanol. Coming up next is a validating defibrillation simulation in a human-shaped phantom by Jess Tate et al. The authors previously developed a computational model to aid clinicians in positioning ICDs. The goal of this study was to use an animal model and a thoracic phantom to record the ICD potential field within the heart and on the torso to validate their defibrillation simulation system. The results showed that the ICD potentials recorded on the tank and the cardiac surface and within the myocardium agreed well with those predicted by the simulation. These results support the use of this model for optimization of ICD placement. This computational model may be useful for customizing subcutaneous ICD implantation by predicting the potential field distributions during shocks. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Chen.